I've been told he refers to himself as the Prince of the South Australian Football League, but those around him prefer to call him Mr. Cuddles. Liam McBean, it's my absolute pleasure. Well, with an intro like that, I tell you what, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to top, I think, for the rest of the podcast. Nah, mate, I just um, got to do my due diligence, got to make sure we've got the, uh, the right content around. And um, before we get started, there's some, there's some tension between you and me that, that we've got to clear up. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we don't actually have the best relationship and it stems back to, uh, to my first week in, in St. Bernard's Year 7. Um, oh, yeah. We were both Bernard's boys and, and you were a few years older than me and I just remember it's my first week at school. Obviously, you, you've got the pressures of being a Year 7. You think the big boys, they're all going to take your chilli chicken rolls at recess and you're just trying to survive. And I find myself there on a Wednesday afternoon at lunchtime out on the Strand basketball courts and uh, you were there with a group of your mates and I was there with a group of my mates. And the only reasonable thing is that we have a, uh, we have a draft. Year sevens and nines play together. We, we come together, play a game, and there was, a, um, there was an odd number of players. So naturally one person was, um, was going to miss out and you were one captain. And there was, a, there was a tall fellow with red hair, one of your mates, and he was the other captain. It would have been Pat, I reckon. Yeah, that's the one, that's Pat the one. Feeling. Yeah, yeah. And um, the picks are flying thick and fast, and all of a sudden I find myself in the, uh, the bottom two. And it's me, and I remember it clearly. It's me and a kid called Nida. And you've got the last pick. You give me one glance and just go, nah, Nida, bang. I now, reckon I reckon in my defense, I reckon I might have seen you as a bit more of a potentially a, a coach. Um, maybe you're a bit more of a strategist on the sidelines. I think I looked at you and I, and I saw Nida and I thought, look, we could we could probably carry him. And I don't know if he'd had the um, the, the strategic brain to be able to carry us as a team. And I thought, you know, I, I think you know, you did the honourable thing. I think you might have even stuck your hand up and said, mate, look, I might I might sit this one out, but what I can do is I can sort of move the magnets around. So yeah, that's, end up that's actually what I did all throughout my sporting career as a junior, like whether it came to footy, cricket, basketball, whatever it was, it's not because I didn't want to be picked. I just thought I was better on the bench. Yeah, I think you just, I think sometimes you've got to pull yourself out of those situations and work out where you're best suited and, and clearly you found your niche. So, <laughs> exactly. look, I'm glad we cleared that up. I'm glad we cleared that up because it would have been, um, I'm glad it might have been hanging over your head for a little while about what I thought about you as an athlete, but I think it's just more so I fancied you more as a, as a coach and a strategist. Mate, it means a, it means a world to hear that because I've gone these last 12 <laughs> years and it's just been on my back. Finally, the monkey's <laughs> off and uh, I, can just, I can just go on. Happy days. Yeah, I'm glad to hear, mate. It's good, good to get that one out of the way early. Now, mate, um, off the cusp, but let's go back and let's talk about Mr. Cuddles. Um, who coined you with the nickname? How did it come about? Give us the story. <sighs> well... I'm, I've got a, I'm guessing that this one's come from my sister, um, I'd have to say. Um, so, Mr. Cuddles is, let me just clarify for, for anyone listening, it's, it's not so much a nickname, it's more of a trait, it's more of my affection and personality. So, myself, my sister um, and I uh, are only two years apart, so we're, we're quite close, but um, I'm probably the affectionate sibling and uh, when we're, we're pissed and all that sort of stuff um, out in the town, I think um with my mates as well i'm very much the same whereas caitlin's very much to honestly get away from me i don't want anything to do with you so um I, I've, I've sort of gotten that nickname from mates and and uh and family across the journey but um yeah it hasn't really stuck as well i don't think no mate, to be honest that wasn't even the um the strangest thing i've i've come across so i was um 
as you know, doing, doing a bit of research, the detective sort of work that I do, and I came across a, a Liam McBean Future Force gold signature footy card on eBay going for $330. Now, mate, you know there's easier ways to make money. You don't need to pawn those cards off on eBay. Well, I just I actually recently um, just bought a new car, so I needed all the, all the money I could get. So I thought I'd flog a few cards off, and hopefully that would go towards the deposit. But... Um, Unfortunately, the asking price, I've, I've put down a few fake bids, but no one seems to be chomping at them. So they're just not flying out. They're not flying out the door. So we might have to, I might have to revisit um, where I'm at with that one. Mate, I'll tell you what, if you come down to 300, I'll consider it. All right, well, we'll, see, we'll see how we go. I'll have, to, I'll have to talk to my people and we'll get back to you. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> mate, a little bit of a, uh, a change attack from that story, but you're obviously uh, a Melbourne boy, born and bred, now residing in South Australia. What's that change been like over the um, the past few years coming from the hustle and bustle of Melbourne to living in South Australia? Yeah, look, it was really different. Um, I suppose the decision to come across wasn't one I took uh, lightly given the fact that I'm obviously, I'm very close with my family and, and my schoolmates that I grew up with at St. Bernard's. Um, it was more, I suppose, a lifestyle decision and football played a big part in that. So the transition, to be honest, I was pretty lucky. Um, I moved across and, and settled in very quickly to a, a footy club. Um, so I'm playing now at Glenelg um, in the SANFL. And I think that was a real avenue for me to uh, to branch out and to network and to meet a lot of new people. Um, so the, the, the transition, whilst it was tough initially being away from family, I had lived out of home for a few years. So I'd sort of learned to fend for myself. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, look, I, I was very lucky. I mean, when, football clubs and sporting clubs in general are such an amazing um, opportunity and um, you know there's such such great great uh, avenues to really to branch out and to meet as many people as you possibly can if you're prepared to put yourself out there and my sort of extroverted nature I'm, I'm pretty prepared to sort of get myself out and about and sort of talking to different people so um, I was really lucky really lucky in that regard and I couldn't be more grateful I guess for um, the Glen Oak Footy Club and, and the players and sort of families that really welcomed me in that in that short space of time when I first moved over and I guess it's sort of led me now to to staying put um so yeah it's been a great experience yeah mate sounds like you're um sounds like you're loving it but there's there's one issue that divides uh melbournians or victorians and south australians and that is the correct abbreviation of a chicken parmigiana so being a melbourne boy are you still on the uh the palmer wagon or have you gone to the dark side and you're calling it a palmy it's an argument that I have consistently and, and often with people yep. in South Australia. Um, I'm still firmly entrenched in the Parmigiana. So Parma is my abbreviated name for a Parmigiana. Um, it's very, it's very easy to spot a Melbourne in South Australia where they, when they offer, when they order one at a barber and you'll get a couple of strange looks. I've even had a couple of people say, you mean a Parmi? I said, no, no, I mean a Parma. Um, and I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of bar chats sitting around a table and just trying to convince people that when you, when you actually pronounce Parmigiana, you don't say Parmigiana, you say exactly. Parmigiana. Exactly. And so it's a Parma. It's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's a battle I'll continuously fight until the day I, I vacate. But, um, look, they don't seem to see a lot of sense sometimes with South Australians. Mate, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're flying the flag for us. It's good to, uh, it's good to see. Um, I'm, I'm trying my best. Now, mate, if I'm not mistaken, that move to South Australia came in 2017. Is that right? Yep. 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 So this should technically be your fourth year in South Australia, but realistically, it's probably only your third because you spent a fair bit of 2018 jet-setting around Europe. Um, Where'd you go? What was your favourite place or memory? And most importantly, do you actually remember any of it? 
<laughs> yeah, look, it's um, probably, I mean, I'm not even probably, it's by far the best thing I think I did for myself was, was getting away and going overseas and something. It was an ambition I'd had for quite some time to probably get away from uh, what I saw as, you know, the sort of generic football lifestyle and just rolling through season after season. I felt like at my age, I was wanting to explore other things. Um, so I was over there for probably between four and five months, um, spent the first probably quarter of the trip traveling with family. So um, my family background is, um, is a lot of my family is Irish. My grandpa was born there, moved here when he was 22. Um, so I pretty much flew over solo and went and met up with my cousins over there that I hadn't seen in probably 10 or 15 years. And um, they ended up taking me sort of back from the UK back to Ireland. And we spent about uh, four weeks there and just going to meet relatives and traveling around different spots. Um, from there, sort of went back to back to England and um, spent some time there, met one of my best mates from St. Bernard's and we did a fair tour from, you know, all the way from the west side of Europe. So um, from England up to France, Belgium, Netherlands and up through Northern Europe. So um, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, across to Russia for the World Cup. And then from Russia, went back to, to Germany and then uh, Italy, Spain, Greece. And then I reckon we finished in Croatia, that stint. And then after that, flew back to Ireland um, that was, a, I mean, from after the period I'd spent in, you know, Spain, Greece and Croatia, it was probably time to have a bit of settle down time. And so I flew back for some, for some cuddles actually of my family and went and saw my relatives again and spent probably another week and a half, two weeks back in Ireland before I flew home. So, um, look, there's parts of the trip that I couldn't tell you what I was doing for a couple of days. And there's parts of the trip where, um, yeah, I remember there's some of the most vividly, you know, good memories that I've got. So, um, yeah, I mean, highly recommend that to anyone they want to take that path it was it was awesome mate it sounds like you're um you're a trip advisor you've got an opinion of every single country in europe it seems like um yeah for sure so after europe you settled back into life in south australia and obviously living out of home you've done it for a few years prior to south australia but there's a need to fend for yourself with the washing the admin and the uh the cooking however i'm told that cooking isn't your strong suit in fact i've been told that you're so bad in the kitchen that you couldn't make the jelly out of a packet. Is there any truth to that? And has the cooking improved since? So look, it, that's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty loaded question. Um, first of all, the Intel you've got is accurate. I'm going to pay that. Um, I did have my struggles probably late teens, uh, early twenties cooking, um, living out of home. I probably kept Uber eats in business early in the first couple of years. Um, yeah, it wasn't, I wasn't so sort of uh, handy in the kitchen. Um, and yet there was a time where I did, um, I opted to try to make some jelly cause I'd got my wisdom teeth out and instead of putting warm water in the fridge to set with the jelly, I put cold water in there and was wondering why the jelly wasn't doing anything. It wasn't setting. So I went to check it a couple of hours later and lo and behold, nothing had happened. Um, so yeah, obviously I've requested the help of my family to assist me. And obviously my sister at the time has come out to help me and realize that, uh, yeah, unfortunately I hadn't really read the instructions right. So we've come a long way since then. Probably in the last year and a half has been some real inroads um, since returning to, to SA. So my men, what I can cook now is, um, is far more diverse. I've actually got a, I'm actually cooking for some friends tonight. So that's, that's how far I've come my journey. I'm actually Jeez. willing for people to taste my cooking, which is, yeah, it's a big step in the right direction, I reckon. Now, mate, you've touched on it, but some people will know you from Glenelg, but others might know you from the Tigers. Um, for now, though, I want to focus on early days. 
some people move into into footy later in their lives. They pick it up after a basketball background, whatever it may be, and they just succeed. Whereas footy was at the forefront at a very young age. So passionate about footy. In fact, I'm told you would you would simulate full matches, get the full kit on, keep score for both teams, and then most importantly, kick the winning snag from 50 out as Liam McBean. Is that something you still do regularly or is that just reserved for special occasions now? Unfortunately, my backyard in SA doesn't quite have the um, capability to put goalposts. Uh, it's not a big enough field to probably play a full length. I think we'd only be playing half court in the backyard. But yeah, that's true. I think, um, yeah, I, I was um, I was writing some of my stats when I was younger and um, as a lot of kids would do, run around the backyard with a jumper on your back and a footy under your arm and pretending that you're playing AFL. And it's um, it's funny how things end up. I was running around as a kid pretending that I was playing for Richmond and running around like I was playing on the MCG and um, something that I ended up, you know, being able to do, which was incredible as a childhood dream. But um, yeah, perhaps that's why I burnt myself out of footy because I started doing everything from such a young age and, and paying too much attention to the small things. I think Dad thought it was... I was Rain Man on Bruce McAvaney with the stats and everything else. But um, yeah, it was a really, I mean, like I, I was um, just like any other kid in that regard. So yeah, footy was always the, the major love for me for sure. Yeah, mate, and it, it obviously paid off being selected by the Tigers with pick 33 in the, uh, the 2012 draft. What was that process like in the lead up to the draft, sort of a 16, 17, 18 year old? When did you... I realised you had a chance at making it. And then what was that night like where you, you heard your name be called out? Yeah, so the pathway that I sort of undertook, um, look, I had a very, very uh, amazing pathway to, to get into the AFL. I think, um, you know, playing local football at AFL, I was playing there until my under 16 days. And I think sort of prior to that, had started doing some development training programs with the Colter Cannons. Um, so spent probably three or four years um, in that sort of system and, um, as part of that, went to the under-16 championships, eventually selected for Vic Metro. And, and that's sort of all how it began. And I think it was probably the day, oh, probably 16, and oh, just on 16, I reckon. Um, and I'd got a letter from the Australian Institute of Sport, which had suggested that I'd had a scholarship there. Um, so I was there for two years under a scholarship program with 30 other players across the country, um, you know, which is an incredible experience. We got to got to travel overseas. We had a number of different footy camps with mentors that had played AFL. Um, so you got to learn from, from really the best. Um, so that process really from, from 16 to 18 um, really was nurtured and, and guided through what it would look like being an AFL footballer. And um, I suppose, you know, that, that 16 to 18 year old period, I, I had a fair idea that I was in the chance to, to get drafted and you never really want And of course, when people ask you, you never want to tell, tell them you think you're going to get picked up. But I think, through high school, particularly the back end of high school, I thought there was a fair chance if I really did everything right and um, obviously played good football was the was the main thing. Playing at Calder Cannons um, and Big Metro and the championships and whatnot. Um, if I you know if I played well enough that I that I would get the opportunity and um, draft night was spent at my, my auntie and uncle's house with um, a lot of my family and probably 15, 20 of my closest mates that I'd gone to school with. Um, and I actually memorized my, my, the number that they'd given me, my player number. So when they sort of called it out at the time, I already sort of knew before they'd called out my name where I'd got drafted. And um, look, to be honest, one of, the, one of the most incredible nights I think I've ever had, I think it was a feeling of you know, vindication in a way. Like you've, you've, you've obviously put so much work and time and effort um, over the course of not just two years before getting drafted, but it's, a, it's the course of work from when you're four or five years old running around with a footy under your hand. Yeah. So 
um, to be able to get the opportunity to go to Richmond, my childhood um, dream and childhood club. It was um, a really, really special moment. You know, lots of tears, lots of drinks. Um, and then sure enough, a lot of phone calls from, from different players and coaches and whatnot. And then within three days, you're on a flight and um, I was off to Cairns on a footy, you know, footy camp as such. So it all happened like that, really. It was just a blur. Um, but yeah, an incredible, incredible period of time in my life, that's for sure. And you mentioned that preseason camp or the, the training camp to Cairns. Was there a moment there or a moment in your first year where you, you had a uh, sort of a holy shit moment, welcome to the, the big time? This is a different experience? Yeah, it was it was such a it was such an interesting one because I'd I'd actually flown out to Cairns when all my mates had gone to schoolies, so that was a that was a really it was kind of like okay well, life's changed a fair bit now you know there's obviously going to be a lot more sacrifice that goes into it and you're going to miss out on some things and that's what you're going to have to adjust to and deal with. Um, I think probably the first the first probably week and a half um, on that camp in particular, um, I suppose it was a real eye opener. Not only I mean the the work the hard work. Um, physically mentally what that sort of takes on your body particularly being a, a pretty underdeveloped 18 year old you know in terms of height i was probably six foot six or six foot um, seven but i was only about 86 kilos so i was very very lightly built so my body wasn't really um ready to sustain a lot of the challenges that were going to come um, in the months uh, post that but i think the biggest eye-opening moment was when you you're standing around rubbing shoulders with players that you've idolized and watched on tv and wanted to emulate in some capacity, you know, like for example, Jack Raywald, I've watched him play so much during my junior career, you know, watched him kick a lot of goals and whatnot. And then sure enough, you know, five days after getting drafted, I'm on a flight next to him um, on the way to Cairns and, you know, learning from him. So in that regard, it was um, a pretty, pretty special experience to, to live out that sort of childhood dream. That's for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And um, you had some, some strong form in, in the reserves in 2013 and 14, which led to your debut round seven against the Pies at the MCG. What was it like stepping out? Obviously, you've grown up wanting to wear that Guernsey. What's it like when you actually step out for the first time, you're presented with the jumper and then you make your way out onto the G? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, you're right. I, I was playing some pretty strong footy in my first sort of two years. Um, had a few injuries to sort of sustain within that time. So there's a lot of periods where you sort of wonder whether you're ever going to get to that stage where you're, you're ready to get selected. And um, I put in a really big preseason going into 2015 and, and that sort of was the reward that I got. I think it was about six or seven rounds in, um, debuted against Collingwood. And yeah, I mean, I remember stand, sitting in uh, Damien Harbick's office at the time and getting told that you're going to get going to play. And I'd come off the back of two years where I'd been a, um, an emergency a few times, you know, quite a number of times and sort of that, I guess that finally that satisfaction of knowing that, you know, you're going to play and you're going to get the opportunity. So I remember after that, after the stepping foot in the office, it was like, all right, I've got to turn my phone off, you know, the day going into the games because obviously there'd be a lot of people that message and, and want to reach out. But um, yeah, the jumper presentation was incredible. I made my debut with a player named Connor Manager who um, was playing at Richmond at the time. So we both got presented at Guernsey at the same time. And yeah, incredible experience. I think there's about sixty-two or sixty-three thousand people there at the time. So it was a fair, um, fair jump from, I guess, the one and a half thousand that might have been at, at Coburg or at Pun Road over the two years that I played reserves footy. Um, but yeah, an amazing day, and we were lucky enough to to get the win and a Gatorade shower after the game. So um, yeah, amazing day. Definitely um, one of the highlights. 
So you spent a few more years uh, with the Tigers with some, some really strong form again, winning the 2015 Jim Miller Trophy for the, I think it's the VFL leading goal kicker. I think you tied it with yeah. players. Yep. 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 But that's enough of pumping your tyres up. That's enough about the on-field accolades. I'm more interested in the stuff that went on behind the scenes. What are some of the, the best memories you have of being in the club environment? Just any memories you, you, you look back on fondly or any gold standard stories you've got for us? Oh, look, there'd be, there'd be plenty. I mean, I was, I was so lucky. Um, the four years I spent there, despite the fact that I was, that I, I've sort of moved on from Richmond uh, when I was about 22, the four years I spent there, it was incredible. I, I learned a lot about myself, you know, in that sort of environment, you really have to grow up quite quickly. You come in as an 18 year old fresh out of school and you've got to mature really, really quickly in order to sort of meet the standard that, um, you know, that is expected of you at a footy club. So, from an on-field perspective, like you sort of mentioned, obviously my first game, um, second second game actually was dream time at the G and I got to play against um, one of my best mates, Joe Danaher, who's obviously um, still in Essendon. Um, and that was actually Dustin Fletcher's 400. So, you know, a huge, you know, a huge build up into that game. So I was, I was so lucky. I got to experience a lot of the, um, a lot of real highs. You know, there's always the the footy trips and all that kind of stuff. We went to went to Cairns one year as a group, which is a lot of fun. I think the the, the most exciting part was just the the friendships that you make in those sort of environments, and you know, the, the sort of locker room discussions you're walking in every day, and you just, that's that's your job to to essentially play football and and lift weights and different meetings and whatnot. It's, it's a really unique environment. Um, some thrive and, and some don't. But um, yeah, I'm really grateful for all the times that I had there. I had some really, really great highlights, that's for sure. Yep. And um, mate, as you mentioned, you now find yourself in South Australia with Glenelg. How have you enjoyed that transition from being a full-time athlete with, with all that goes into being a full-time athlete and all that's involved in it to now still playing at a very high level, but also exploring other interests? I know you're working full-time on the side. So what's that transition been like? Yeah, it's funny. I think the, um, the first year was a bit of an eye-opener, I reckon, because you're just not quite prepared for it. Yeah, like I hadn't worked really in that much of a capacity before football being my, my full-time occupation. So the first year was, was challenging. You're sort of working from you know, 8.30 until 5 and then going to training three or four nights a week. So um, that was a little bit difficult to begin with. Um, I suppose that's probably what burnt me out a little bit after that first year was okay, do I really want to continue to do this? And what, you know, what are my reasons for really enjoying football? And you sort of, I sort of had to go back and really discover that. Um, but to be honest, now that I'm uh, a bit more mature and I've probably gone and seen a little bit more of the world and I've sort of knocked out a bit of the curiosity that was probably burning within me while I was, I was playing football, I'm really settled now. And I think having that balance of a work life and your personal life and your footy life instead of them all being sort of intertwined into one, I think was really, really important for me. I needed to have that sort of structure. And footy now is probably 30 to 40% of my life. Whereas, you know, the four years I spent at Richmond, it was, you know, it was pretty much a hundred. Um, so I, I really personally, I, I really enjoy um, being able to explore other things outside of football and, and have that as, you know, because I guess when you're, when you're playing professional footy, like I mentioned, it is 100% of your life and you probably don't really get to explore too much outside of that because it, it's a full-time job, but it's also a full-time lifestyle. Yep. Um, from you know, football, from an eating perspective, from a drinking perspective, from a sleep perspective, from a social aspect, it's a, it's a full-time you know, profession. And um, At the moment, I get, to have, you know, I get to have a really good working life, social life and a football life. So yeah, it's been, it's been really fun. Do you think that that balance 
has sort of, because I, I know you've alluded to it a little bit about losing that passion for footy. Do you think that refinding or discovering that balance is, has made a big impact and in, in, um, in reigniting in that passion? Yeah, definitely. I think not only from a football perspective, I think um, uh, from a personality perspective, I think it's actually shaping into a better person, having more of a balanced lifestyle. Um, when you're in that AFL system, you know you you have to be selfish and you have to really prioritise yourself because that's that's the nature and um, you know, there's no disrespect in that statement. It's just more so that with so much scrutiny and um, expectation that comes from not only within the football club but external to that, you're under a microscope all the time. So you've you've got to you know obviously commit 100% to that lifestyle. Um, I think certainly since I've come back to SNFL level and, and had a job and and being able to take the foot off a little bit with football and actually start to soak up and, and be a 20, you know, from when I got delisted to be a 23, 24, 25 year old and actually be a normal 23 to 24 year old and go out and enjoy having drinks with mates and not having um, to worry about a time you're getting home and how much sleep you're getting. And, you know, I think it's, it's a very different lifestyle. I think you know, obviously you still have some parameters that you set yourself, but um all in all, I think my life is, um, I'm so much more well-rounded as a person because I'm not solely focused on one aspect of my life, which is yep. football. So, um, yeah, it's been, that's been definitely a big change. No, well said. And um, outside of footy, you've become a pretty keen writer, which we'll touch on in depth um, in a moment. But how did that passion for writing come about? And when did you realise it was something you had a knack for? Because some of those articles which... Like I've I've messaged you about them before. They're they're bloody good. Appreciate that, and um, I mean I have to give credit. It's probably uh, my mother's influence that sort of stirred me, or I suppose steered me down that path. Um, writing was something that I was probably always you know, had a knack for um, being quite talented with when I was younger, but I never really explored it too much post high school. Like I touched on before, with a, with a lifestyle I was living, being very very consuming. I didn't really allow myself to have many interests outside of that. And um, I suppose I probably took it up more so when I'd finished my career because there was a lot of emotions that I was a football career, uh, I mean, but um, there were a lot of emotions that I was feeling post my football career that I probably didn't know how to grasp them. And I was trying my best to sort of understand them and to work through them. And um, it probably started from when I did get delisted, starting to write down things about how I was feeling and trying to harness that emotion and, and, and use it for good as opposed to, letting it sort of drown me and specifically when I when I decided to um, release a sort of my first piece that I did publicly um, it's a piece it was a piece called tell them you love them and I was actually we touched on it before I was actually overseas at the time and I was um, in Berlin uh, with one of my best mates and um, had a really uh, tough day over there one of my best mates mum had passed away from from cancer and um, another friend of mine from SA had taken her own life and had all these um, all these things that were just stirring away that I really wanted to get down on paper. And um, eventually, it was funny, I, I remember just, I walked out and jumped on a bus to go into the city and was sitting there on my phone just like plugging it all in and what, how I was sort of feeling and ended up putting it all together. And I just thought to myself, if, if I can gain something from what I've been able to write, um, hopefully if I can, if I share this, maybe some people can take something out of this too. And in a really tough time because you, my mate's, Mum was obviously a long-time school friend from St. Bernard's and my friend from Adelaide was actually um, uh, a girl that was actually connected with a few of my mates. So both of my big sort of friendship groups were really affected um, at that time and I thought if I could 
spread a message at that time that would potentially do more more good and, and spread more positivity and uh, I suppose it was more of a, a wake up call that sometimes in our busy lives that we don't often really some you know stop and um, and think about the loved ones that we have around us and potentially what they could be going through. So tell them your loved ones a pretty simple message, but sometimes it's uh, it's not often uh, or not said enough. So for me, that's it was a passion I had for some time, but I suppose there was a, a, a catalyst. That moment was a real catalyst for me to, I suppose, to share it with people and to allow myself to be a little bit vulnerable. And, um, and I was just really flattered that a lot of people really resonated strongly. And I guess that's why I kept doing it. Yeah, mate, absolutely. And that leads us on to the next bit because that article in combination with the one you wrote earlier this year titled um, Spread Love and Embrace Vulnerability, it really puts that emotional aspect, that vulnerability aspect, and most importantly, the mental health side of things at the forefront. Um, So in saying that, were those articles the start of your mental health journey in terms of your awareness of mental health or does your journey start earlier and and prior to that um certainly uh, definitely started earlier i think it was probably the first time i felt comfortable enough to to voice how i was feeling or to to describe and dissect my emotions and allow myself to be to be vulnerable for other people to see that and um obviously coming from my background being a footballer and whatnot there's probably some preconceived ideas about what footballers are like and um there's always uh, the male vulnerability at the moment is so a bit of a hotter topic, but um, probably something we're not very good at is being open and, and honest with how we're feeling. And I felt like if I could provide a platform where I was able to put that into words and maybe it might encourage someone else that I was close to or a connection to, to do the same. And if that makes a difference with one person, then that's what's worth for me. But I guess my probably my mental health journey did start when I did get delisted, but it was probably um, a combination through that year of, my last year of football was quite tumultuous in a way. I'd, um, I'd been diagnosed with Crohn's disease at the start of the year in pre-season and we had sort of gone through pre-season before that, not knowing why I was so fatigued and flat and I couldn't um, get my body to do things that I you know, usually was capable of doing. And as a result of that, there was a lot of pressure and scrutiny from the football club because I didn't have any, any idea that I was actually a bit sick um, and it was something that I'd probably kept to myself for a little while before um, it sort of became a little bit more public knowledge. Um, so my last year of football was a really challenging one at Richmond because probably on the on the way out of that career and trying to work out what was going to be the next step. And that's a really daunting prospect for someone that has devoted a lot of their um, life to football and then doesn't really know what the next step is going to be. Um, so I suppose that year was a really up and down roller coaster of emotions of, you know, playing really good footy and then playing AFL and then getting dropped and then playing again and then getting dropped and and then sort of seeing the light was, um, you know, I think the reality, which was that I was probably not going to be around for too much longer um, and just trying to enjoy that last period as much as I possibly could. So I guess it really started that, that, that probably start of 2016. Um, getting delisted, I remember coming home and the whole wave of emotions between disappointment and embarrassment, but all the way through to relief in a way i think it was something that had um perhaps i've been carrying around a little bit of anxiousness about my football and perhaps that had actually had a negative impact on my life more than a positive um playing in the afl and it took me a little bit of time to sort of dissect how i was feeling before i sort of had a big deep breath out and thought all right well it's time for the next challenge and um yeah, for sure. I suppose moving away from family then afterwards caused a new set of challenges living away from my family and having to 
to uh, acclimatise in a new environment and meet new people and put myself out there. So the mental health journey, I, I suppose, when I became aware of, of that kind of journey itself was probably at the start of 2016, but I think it's carried all the way through to now. I mean, I have, I have bad days even now. And, um, of course, COVID, which has been uh, you know, such a, a different, an indifferent time for a lot of people, is, has caused some, some grief from, I'm sure, yourself and also me as well. So, um, yeah, I think my mental health stuff is, I think it's always best to sort of speak about, but certainly it probably stemmed from probably four or five years ago, I think. And, and that confidence to, to speak about it now, was that, do you think that comes from how you addressed it when it first came up? Like, did you seek out any professional help? Did you rely on family networks? When, that, when you first started realising that moment, I guess, through that year, the subsequent delisting, when did you realise it was A, an issue and how did you, how did you go about dealing with it? I was very lucky. My, um, the back end of my time at Richmond, I was introduced to a, a really amazing mentor by the name of Emma Murray. Um, she's still currently working at the Richmond Football Club and mentors quite a few of the players and essentially she's their mindfulness coach now. So a lot of what Emma does stems from, um, you know, I suppose the, the saying is, what can you control and what can't you control? And that was something that really resonated with me really strongly in my back end of my time at Richmond. She was a really strong mentor for me. I think that was probably the, the catalyst for me to start reaching out to other people. Um, but of course, I had a really strong network of friends and family. Um, very lucky that within my, you know, my strong mates and whatever, that we can have really open and candid conversations about how we're feeling. I think it's probably... Um, has probably improved more as we've gotten older and realised that the stigma attached to uh, mental health for males, um, you know, is something that we want to get rid of. So, yeah, I was, I was, I'm very lucky. I've, I've had some great support networks around, and and as a result of having really good mentors in my life, I've then you know wanted to do the same thing for people that um, have been potentially younger than me or are going through some similar challenges. Yeah, mate, well said. And and one thing you've you've alluded to a few times is that stigma surrounding. Um, men, there's there's probably uh, there's a there's a focus on like hyper masculine traits I find, which stops blokes speaking up and and vocalising what they're going through. Why do you think that that it's a, it's a very hard question? If we knew the answer, mental health wouldn't be an issue. But why do you <laughs> yeah. think that um, that hyper masculine focus still exists, and why do you think it prevents us from from speaking out? I think it's, look, it probably passes down from generation to generation. I think we're sort of, I think we're getting towards a stage now where that, that mentality is, is being phased out. But I guess it all depends on your upbringing as well. You may have come in and come, you know, brought up in a household which um, was uh, particularly you know, advocative for you to be able to speak out and then sort of express your emotions as a male. Or perhaps you grew up in a household where you were, um, advice to, to swallow it up and, and to get on with it and to toughen up. Um, I think we're slowly starting to eradicate that sort of, uh, that stigma. Um, but look, it is still there. Obviously, mouse um, suicide rates are still way too high. Um, you know, you're right. If we, if we did have the answer to the question, I'm sure there wouldn't be as much, um, you know, it'd be a lot clearer. But I think it's just a matter of obviously being able to have those conversations with your mates and, um, it's it's crazy. I think the the best conversations I've ever had um, with my friends surrounding um, mental health challenges or things they're going through is is probably when I've been the first one to open up and my my vulnerabilities have been on show. Um, and look, if I've ever had conversations with people in my life that have uh, made me feel small for having 
um, that kind of feeling, I think that's probably a, a real sign that they're probably not the right person to have in my life. And I think that's a, probably a message for anyone else out there. If you've got those sort of connections that aren't allowing you to um, to probably describe sort of the way that you are feeling, if you are having challenges, then you probably need to, to really evaluate um, their place in your life. So I think the best times that I've had and um, the best conversations I've had with this stuff have been when I've been the instigator of, of being vulnerable and, and talking about how I'm feeling um, I think that's, that's provided the most success and it's allowed other people to have that platform to, to open up around me, which, um, yeah, which has been a huge positive. And I've had some incredible conversations with friends that, you know, I probably wouldn't have had had I not um, been the instigator. And then I've also had friends that have now that come to me and, and, and want to talk about, you know, different things that are going on in their life. So that's a real positive, I think. 100%. And I think you hit the nail on the head where if you're prepared to be vulnerable and put down the line, you'll be very surprised with what gets returned. Like I remember the very first night I told my mates that I was, I was struggling and there was something going on. I had a group of some really close mates come over and I remember telling them like, Oh, I've got some really important sport news to tell you. Like one of them thought I was going to the Olympics or something like that, which I was like, mate, you're way Is this your basketball career taken off again? Yeah, that's there. That's the basketball career yeah, yeah. in the background. But um, I remember, I remember the moment I told him and like I was in front of him, had tears come down my face and, that literally everyone got up, came around and gave me a hug. And there was, I remember three or four blokes, I won't name them, but they, they said to me, like, that's unbelievably brave. I've been going through this as well. And I was just like, yeah. whoa, like, I, I would yeah. not have known that. So now not only do I have that support network, but I know that we can have honest conversations about it. And yeah, just opening up the, it, it really shows that it, it does make a difference in, giving other people courage to speak out for sure and i think you sort of touched on um the, the sort of piece of writing that I, I did at the start of the year which was called spread love and embrace vulnerability um i think you know for me that was um an avenue to do exactly what we just spoke about and to put that out into the into the world and um you know the, the people that could read it you might not have had it might not have had an effect on you you might not have resonated with it but then some people that really did and it probably encouraged them to speak to their friends and, and so on it's the flow on domino effect i think so um you know i'm just, you know, there are some really really incredible people that have done amazing work for mental health and um i don't claim to be certainly one of them i think it's more so that if i can if i can preach a message that i think is really important and other people find that it's this, the same thing that it's um, it's certainly a conversation that's worth having and um, you know, like you know, you've obviously mentioned, you've you've had some some challenges and, and spoken to your mates. I'm sure that if you looked around, you'd rather have a five to ten minute conversation than be you know standing on top of you know potentially a, a mate that's ended up taking the, his own life. And I know that seems really extreme, but it's the reality that of the world we live in that some people won't feel like they have a platform or, um, or don't have that comfortability to really speak out and address how they're feeling. And and that's what you want to be able to do if you're a close friend is to be able to give them that give them the microphone and be able to let them, let them tell you exactly how they're feeling and, and don't judge. It's just, you know, it's a matter of just listening, um, listening and being there for someone is, is all that's important. 100%. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like it's not about us being mental health experts. I do not claim to be anything more than what anyone else knows. Like there's, I, I recognize that at the top, there are the people who study this for their whole life and the science behind it and all that. But, what we can do is be proactive and have those conversations so that it minimizes the amount of people who are forced to go to that, that reactive, like seek out reactive um, 
help. Like be proactive yeah. and have that conversation to stop someone getting to that point. And I think, yeah, that's, that's the most important thing. Exactly. And essentially conversations that you have, I think, you know, it's, it goes further than, oh, how are you going, mate? You know, how was your day? It's how's work going? Like, how's your life going? You know, you, you want to dig deeper with your friends to find out exactly what's going on in their life beyond the, the small talk conversation. I think that's really important. You know, too often we probably hang out with a couple of mates and sit around over a few beers and, you know, you're not really talking about anything that has any value. And look, there's, there's you know, there's, there's times to sit around and, and have a joke and whatnot, but then there's also times to really pull, you know, mate um, aside and, and find out really how their life's going. And, you know, that conversation, you never know, it could save a life. So, um, yeah, I think we, we all play a vital role in that. Yeah. And um, one thing else that I found really interesting in that article was you touched on that sense of comparison. I remember you writing about how you were in your car and you had, you had tears come down the face and you were like, why do I feel like this? I've got such a good life i've got all these things going for me and that was the bit that really resonated with me because i battled with the same thing like i'd i you almost feel like you don't have a right to feel this way because you've got all this other good stuff and there are there are people in the world that are worse off when did you identify or how did you identify that that element of comparison wasn't healthy and it it was okay for you to vocalize what you were going through i think it's um it's it's funny remember that vividly like that feeling of you have no right to be upset you know you've you've got no right liam you're you've got a a full-time job you're playing football you you're with all your mates why why do you have a right there's i'm sure there are so many other people that are isolated that are feeling this the effects of this so much more but um that's a really uh short-sighted view And, and look everyone you'll hear the age old you hear it all the time it could be worse Uh, and don't get me wrong there are people that complain about things that are very trivial but when it comes to this sort of stuff everyone is going to be affected in a different way um the way i would perceive or the way i would deal with my you know what happened or the implications of a situation like this pandemic for example is different to the way that you would handle it or you know other friends that would handle it so you need to be i think um aware enough to understand that Yes, there are people that would be feeling this more than you would be that would have bigger challenges, but you still have a challenge yep. and you still need to work through that because I'll, you, know, you need to be able to work out within yourself, like what are the emotions that I'm feeling, not what I should be feeling. What am I feeling? Like, is it the anxiousness? Is it, you know, is it sadness? Is it, am I angry? You know, and, and be able to just properly not only work those out and sort of, you know, put a label on them but they're not actually to work through them and for me writing was always a really good you know avenue like we touched on writing was writing it down was always a really good avenue and then obviously talking about it with friends but um i think it's it's always important to realize that you everyone has their own battle um, and it doesn't have a face and it doesn't have a name sometimes and it's not often in the public sphere you won't see it but everyone is going through their own sets of challenges so don't devalue your own um always you know look to to, you know, to help yourself and then help others. I think you need yeah. to have a two-pronged approach for sure. Definitely. And you can't help others if you don't prioritise yourself because you're only going to be able to put half-assed effort into helping them. Um, yeah, you're dealing with all this stuff inside. You can't, you can't expect yourself to, to guide someone else through something if you're not prepared to, to guide yourself. Exactly right. You're spot on. And there's nothing more rewarding, I think, than, you know, addressing an, an issue that you're facing with someone that you're close with and wrapping your arm around them and and you know there's that feeling of relief you know that you've you've got that out in the atmosphere 
it's off your chest, you know, and potentially they've done exactly the same thing. It's a really rewarding experience. And I think um, the conversations that we can certainly keep having. 100%. And now, mate, are there any um, things you've picked up along the way? I know you, you touched on the, the help of Emma at Richmond um, or anything that you've learned from family, whatever it may be, that's really helped you on a daily basis prioritise your mental well-being and mental health? I think for me, my, for me, it's all about balance, I think, in my life. Um, obviously, working takes up a, a portion of my life. Football takes up a portion of my life. Um, you know, having a social life, being with friends, and, and obviously, at the moment, not with family, which is a little bit challenging, but um, having a really good, strong friend network, I think having balance in your life is really, really important. Um, you know, I, I've, I've often uh, preached the value of meditation. That's something that I've been pretty... Um, pretty avid on um, since my back end of my days at Richmond I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed um, doing some meditation and being able to sort of just enjoy the slowdown period a little bit more because often life is quite chaotic and you know, my life between football and work and all that sort of stuff is it can get really really busy sometimes you just need to be able to allocate that time for yourself um, so I'd say meditation is definitely up there I think things that I picked up like I mentioned before I think things that have sort of helped keep my mental health in check is is probably it's centered around what I can and what I can't control. And you'll, you'll probably would have heard that a number of times. I'm sure if anyone's listening, they've probably heard it a million times, but for me, it's about simplifying my focus as best as I can and, and problems that arise. It's okay. Well, what can I do about them? What can't I do about them? I'm not going to worry about things that I can't control about the situation because if I do, no matter whether I worry or I don't worry, it's going to happen regardless. It's out of my control, but what I can control, what I can do is the things that I'm going to put my energy and my time into. Um, I think, you know, of course, we, we, we sometimes um, we get worried about things that are probably uh, or anxious about things that are probably you know, haven't happened or potentially will happen or, you know, can happen down the track. But um, I would prefer to negate and direct my energy uh, more so into things that are happening right now and trying to stay in the present as much as I possibly can. So, um, yeah, the rest will take care of itself. 100%. And, yeah, the, the control, what you can control thing is, is so big and not like i implore i know people hear it but actually following through with it's massive another one that was helpful for me was accept don't avoid like mm -hmm. if if there's something there and it's i don't know it's making you anxious it's you you've got those feelings of whatever it is towards it accept it it's going to be uncomfortable but don't avoid it because when you avoid it you bottle it up it just amplifies that issue whereas if you, yeah. if, you if you address it there and then oftentimes you'll find that Yes, it's difficult, but it's nowhere near as difficult as what you thought it would be. Exactly. I think that is a massive thing. Um, it's something that I, I definitely have learned as well is any issues, problems, things that you're feeling, it's always best to sort of be on the front foot about it and, and, and welcome it in a way. It's never, you know, those I sort of theory, I guess, is, you know, sometimes the hardest, the hardest things um, are often the most rewarding and, and yeah. often the easiest, the easiest decision or the easiest road to take is often not the right road. So, um, you know, you, you do have to confront those problems head on and, and do address them because, you know, the more you, the more you run away from them, um, the, the bigger they grow and, and the worse it will be when they do catch up. So I think it's, it's absolutely spot on. Accept and confront straight away, I think is definitely the best. Perfect, mate. Um, now, before we, we wrap up, and um, I'm putting you on the spot a bit here because we've sort of just touched on it then, but what's one thing you've either learnt or you've, you've discovered, um, one thing you've really taken to heart 
uh, along your mental health journey that's that's stuck with you that you can share with the rest of it is it is it that control what you can control is there a mantra that you sort of aim to live by um yeah what's something that you can share with us that's really helped um look it it probably does stem from things that i've written down in the past that have probably stuck with me um uh i think embracing vulnerability is probably the thing that i really do live by and um and and i encourage it i think you know anyone that's close enough to me will will uh will certainly back that statement up is that i might sound like a bit of a broken record but if um for me if i can embrace how i'm feeling and be able to you know talk to someone that i'm close with about that then like we touched on before it'll give them the opportunity and the confidence to be able to, to do the same thing back so if there's one thing that from from my perspective as a takeaway is that you know in, in embrace that vulnerability don't feel like you're alone because you're not um and you never know the power of vulnerability and how that um, can translate into and I, I guess can improve conversations and friendships and relationships that you've got in your life um, the more you're prepared to be open the more you know the, the light that you give other people to be open around you and i think that feeling of knowing that you've given someone a green light to to open up and to to really unreservedly speak how they're feeling i don't think there's anything more powerful than that you know if you, from a friend from a family member as a brother as you know as a, as a son or a, you know a you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is, I don't think there's anything more powerful than giving someone the keys to to be truthful and honest and, and real with you. So um, if I can, yeah, leave my takeaway, would be just embrace that vulnerability and um, that's it. Mate, 100%. I could not have said it any better myself. And um, I just want to say thank you for giving up some of your Friday afternoon. I've taken far too much of your time to, to have this That's fine, chat, mate. It's, but... a, it's a worthwhile cause and I really appreciate what you're doing. I think it's fantastic and... Um, yeah, okay. If there's anything else that I can I can do in any capacity, feel free to let me know. But um, yeah, it's been a great great chat to you. Appreciate it, mate. And I'll say the same thing now as I, I said to you after you wrote that article. Um, yeah, just keep embracing that vulnerability. Um, I've got the utmost respect for you and how open you've been with it. And um, yeah, can't wait to see where you go from here. Thanks very much, mate. I appreciate you having me on.